I would like to begin this evening by congratulating all of you for making it through the first day. Um, and I, we all have a tradition of doing that because we all know that it's, um, it's not easy. Um, and I'm sure some of you spent at least a part of today planning your escape. Some of you probably were visited by uh, the states of mind of anywhere but here, wanting what's not going on, clearly not wanting what is going on, um, some restlessness, agitation, some dullness, and probably a, a good share of doubt. Why am I here? We call this combination of these various mental states because they often cascade together into one complex called a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> and they really are the, um, the news sometimes on the first day of a retreat. We often say at the beginning, uh, insight is, um, is bad news. Because what we realize when we come to sit, and, and at least it's helped me understand why the Buddha, one of the reasons the Buddha said that practicing, slowing down, keeping quiet, looking within is, is swimming against the stream. A lot, of a lot of the use of the stream as a metaphor, against the stream of a, of a, a huge momentum of conditioning, the conditioning of the constant pursuit of um, of the next, the next experience, a pretty reliable visiting visitor of dissatisfaction and wanting, and that it's not easy to, to to sit with ourselves. And yet, all of us have come here, and it really is a sign of um, of love for yourself that you've come here that you've somehow understood that all the running after the next best experience has not brought uh, you a sense of relief. And so I congratulate you for that as well. Uh, it's really a reflection of your purity uh, and some understanding already that, that you um, took this time out of your lives. I'm struck as I, as I sit here that uh, nothing's really happened today. Or where is it anyway? It's amazing we have never, not one of us has really left the present moment. And yet our mind, our mind has gone, we've created based on our, our thoughts and our images, our views, our expectations, our hopes, our our mental overlay, we've, we've created a lot of drama today. Does this resonate with you as it's... <laughs> I always wonder whether it's just, just me. <laughs> the whole practice is to, um, is to realize that we're not going anywhere. 
as we have all been saying in our in our own way that it's all about recovering all the the different wisdom traditions all about recovering this capacity of presence or this this innate presence that this you could say this this awareness that is uncreated, unconstructed, it's primary to each of us. And as Mark was um, illustrating this morning when he asked you in some ways to, to try not to be aware, what immediately shines through is this, is this ever-available, ever-present, um, what turns out to be a, a healer, a liberator that we all have within our own consciousness within our own stream of experience, we have within us uh, a tool that can really um, free us. And that freedom, in some way, is a simple shift. It's simple, but it's profound. A simple shift from being just carried along, lost, oblivious, to simply waking up and noticing what's happening. Notice right now as you're just awake to what is happening. Just the simple reality of whatever you're experiencing, using whatever it is, and the re when I say using whatever it is, I often think of practice as, uh, as mindfulness practice, as equal opportunity mindfulness. It doesn't matter what it is you're noticing. Anything can be used in the service of, of waking up. So whatever you're noticing right now, Notice what happens when you're just noticing, just hearing, just sitting, whatever it is you're experiencing. Maybe some unpleasantness. Anybody have any unpleasant experience that they're knowing right now? Okay, just feel that for a moment, just unpleasant. That moment, of, that it may not seem obvious now, but that momentary shift from being caught up in the... the um, the grumbling, the complaining, the analyzing, the interpreting, the, all the things that we do with our experience to simply noticing, oh, this is grumbling, or this is unpleasant. This is tiredness. Ah, tiredness is like this. That little shift. If we exploit this shift, if we really practice it over and over, oh, this is what's happening. Something, something begins to unfold. This really is the center of our practice, is using everything in the service of bringing us back to this vital point of simple presence. As you can see in this moment of simple presence, that what's really, you don't even have to try to do when you're, once you're present, is that it, there's a quality to it of being open. Do you have a sense of what I'm talking about? It's just open. And when, when you're open in this way, you tend to start to be a little bit more clear. You can see a little bit more clearly. And if I can see more clearly, if I can see all of you a little more clearly, I'm going to be, and you will be, a little bit more responsive. We'll, we'll start to make that connection that I was speaking about last night, just by being present. The boundaries between us begin to melt away, all from the simple act of being present. And we can, do, we can apply that to anything we're present with. We bring an openness to it, 
We bring an increased sense of clarity to it, and we bring the capacity, because we have within this, this field of awareness, we have a natural, it has an intelligence to it. We can then, if we're open to whatever I'm, if I'm open to what I'm experiencing, then I can make an intelligent response and pay attention to my knee pain. Anybody have knee pain today? It's great. I'm sorry, I don't mean it that way. I'm so happy that you're telling the truth. Even though the mind will create this idea, I'm the only one that has knee pain. Everybody else looks like Buddhas and I'm miserable here. But when we open to knee pain, First we see, oh, this is knee pain. There's awareness of it, there's openness to it. There's clarity of what the texture of that experience is, and that's the invitation of our practice. What's the texture of this? What's, is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? We open to it. And as we experience that, we can then begin to respond to it. Is it, we start to apply that intelligence. Oh, I can sit with this. It's interesting, I can, this is unpleasant but yet my mind seems kind of interested in it. I'm, I can, this may be the first time in my life I've experienced something unpleasant, and my mind's actually quite okay, quite happy. I can, or this is too unpleasant. I'm noticing that my mind is starting to, to contract. My attitude is getting really aversive. Ah, isn't that interesting? And the pain, as, I, as my attitude contracts, the pain is getting more intense. And I notice that I'm getting really contracted, so maybe I need to, to work with both my attitude, and maybe for right now, because I notice that I'm just getting so flooded, maybe I should make a very deliberate and mindful change of posture. Out of love for myself and wisdom, that this, was, this would be a wise response, a loving response. So all of that springs from not just bringing our, our habitual reactive response, which is, if there's unpleasantness, run for cover. But we've been running for cover innocently, unconsciously, for at least as one of my teachers put it, for, 20, for 35 million years. So the habit is so deeply ingrained to, uh, to try to escape the present moment. Consequently, we haven't, we haven't really learned the value, uh, the, the real possibility of, of openness and freedom uh, that comes from just resting our attention in the present moment. And then the capacity to unleash a, a wise and loving response to our experience and to the experience around us. So the good news is, as you may have even sensed in the course of one day of doing, uh, doing yoga practice and meditation, is that our minds, because they are open in their you could call them an open field of creative possibility. That because they're open, they're eminently trainable. We are not just stuck with our past conditioning. We can't help experiencing the fruits of how we've lived our lives, the teachings that we've received in the past, all the ways that we look at ourselves. We can't help that arising, but we can begin to plant new seeds. 
And essentially, this, this is what we do. We, we plant the seeds uh, of, rather than the seeds of what the Buddha called the three poisons, which is grasping, greed, that tendency to, to want what I don't have, and, or um, aversion to not want what I do have, or delusion to just go into denial or just not see very clearly, cloud over. Instead of that, we moment by moment, we begin to we erase a little bit of that conditioning by replacing it, you could say, with that open presence. And in any moment of open, open awareness, just present with what's happening, There is no, in a moment of presence, there is no grasping in that simple moment. There is no condemning, there's no pushing away in that moment of, oh, this is what's happening. And there's no delusion, there's no denial, there's no spacing out in that moment at least. So we're exploiting that possibility of, of infusing our stream of habit with this quality of, of openness. This is essentially what the Buddha, this is the center around which all wisdom traditions um, revolve and what the Buddha, what the Buddha taught in his famous sutra called the um, Mahasatipatthana Sutra, which is the sutra on the, on the uh, development of the foundations of mindfulness. And I'm not going to talk too much about that tonight. More I'm going to talk about how that really sp- sprang, 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 how did that spring? From the, um, from the teachings of the Buddha. He, like all of us, as I mentioned last night, had that holy longing, had that desire for a reliable refuge, a desire that, um, that rarest desire, the desire that no other desire can fulfill, a desire for something, that you, some place of rest. It goes against the stream of our usual our usual uh, innocent but ignorant habits. And at the time of his awakening, as his mind, from having continuously practiced this openness and then the the resulting clarity and the responsiveness of the heart, the wisdom uh, taught him how it is and the compassion, the love that flowed Um, encouraged him, compelled him to teach for the next 45 years. And essentially what he taught and what all the teachings revolve around, some basic teachings, he said that that we, uh, as human beings, as sentient beings, beings who draw breath, we have stress in our lives. And running from this stress hasn't helped anybody even though it's so innocent and nobody wants to suffer, everybody wants to be happy. But this stress, which is a truth of everybody's life, just the garden variety stresses he called dukkha dukkha, which is pain, loss, praise, blame, all the different experiences of life, of not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, birth, sickness, old age, and death this kind of uh, dukkha, this must be understood, that this is how it is. 
and in fact welcomed. That's a truth. And he said then that uh, what keeps causing us to, um, to get stuck in the, and increase the stresses of our lives is that deeply rooted habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are. So you all noticed a little bit of that in your mind today. And retreats, you really come face to face with that very deeply conditioned habit. It's not even theoretical. Deeply conditioned habit of wanting things to be different. And it expresses itself as craving for the meal, for the Dharma talk, for the end of the day, for the end of the retreat, for any escape, or the craving for the state for becoming something or someone other than who you are. Or the craving to have it all stop. That's why we love to go to sleep at night. This desire to have it all quiet for a little while. This habit, this deeply conditioned habit of wanting things to be different, the Buddha suggested we... um, we have to abandon this cause of suffering. We have to let go of the causes of suffering, that contentious relationship with the present moment, contentious relationship with our lives. He said, this must be uh, relinquished. And he said, fortunately, the third truth, there's an end. We can all experience the relief of letting go of this, this desire for things to be different just letting it be, letting it reveal itself as a changing mood or state of mind. How do we do that? We wake up to it. We notice it. We notice, oh, this is is wanting things to be different. Did any of you, I know if I asked you if you wanted things to be different, you would say, of course I wanted things to be different from time to time today. How many of you, though, just treated that as as an experience to be mindful of. Ah, this is wanting. This is hoping. This is expecting. This is, um, this is waiting. Any of you wait for the bell to ring today? How many of you paid attention to the experience of waiting? When we don't pay attention to the experience of waiting, what happens to us? The way I like to think of it is I'm held in suspended well-being, suspended happiness, kind of hanging, waiting, hoping, praying that the bell rings, that it's the bell being the secret to happiness. And of course the bell rings and I go, ah, as though it's the bell that actually gave me relief. What gave the relief though is that is the melting away of that, that demand, that I get somewhere. But on the other hand, if we, in the process of waiting for the bell to ring, we notice, oh, this is waiting for the bell to ring. We feel it in our bodies. Oh, this is what waiting feels like. I feel kind of suspended. I feel like I'm hostage to the bell. That bell certainly has an enormous amount of power. That bell is everything to me. I'm just, I'm exaggerating now. But once we start paying attention to that state of mind of waiting, we see because it meets that light of attention, of openness, of clarity, of responsiveness, that, that waiting begins to, 
to fade away. The bell doesn't even have to ring. Try it out the next time, because I know there will be a time on this retreat. So last but not least, the Buddha, after having said one must relinquish the causes of suffering and one realize the, the passing away of the causes of suffering, uh, the fourth truth, he said, one must, um, that there is a path. There is a path um, to, the, to the cessation, to the end of, of this, um, to end of the causes of suffering, to the end of suffering. And this must be the causes of happiness. There is a, there is a path to happiness. And this path to happiness must be cultivated. And I imagine that that is the longing that you came for. Uh, that longing to be happy. That is the universal urge. Uh, very rare, as I mentioned earlier, very rare does it take the shape of uh, rather than going out, turning back this way. I like, one of my Tibetan teachers used to make this gesture, turning back the other way. Normally, because, and I notice, even though I've done a lot of turning back, my neck still does this, still leans forward. And one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, used to use the expression constantly, settle back into the moment. You can use that if you like. Settle back into the moment. It's that, that intention to turn the other way, to remember that the way out is here, is in. So this path to the end of suffering was really um, this, the Buddha's way to the end of suffering. It's not the path. This is the Buddha's way. There's Patanjali's way, and then there's the Buddha's way. The Buddha's way, the so-called Noble Eightfold Path, uh, has three essential parts to it. This fourth Noble Truth has, truth has three parts to it. The first part is really reflected in the in the Buddha's understanding that if we live a good life, of not, a life of non-harming, of sharing our resources, that, we will, that that will give rise to uh, a great kind of happiness, the capacity to really enjoy this life, enjoy the, all the pleasures of this life, all the sense pleasures. In fact, he said there were four kinds of, of uh, what you call what you might call worldly happiness, and one is to be able to uh, have uh, and enjoy resources. The second is to share the re- your resources, do good things with them. The third is to be, and this is a real rarity in our world. The third is to be free of debt. Every time I say that in an American setting, I I imagine that there are not that many people who are free of debt. But the fourth one is to be what he called blameless, to have a foundation of ethics and morality. And of those four, the development of um, the part of the Eightfold Path of non-harming, of wise speech, of wise action, of wise livelihood, is considered to be 16 times stronger 
and more powerful, more important than the other three. Because it makes possible if we, it, it creates such a fragrance in our lives. And because our mind is not reverberating from the effects of our lies and our thefts and our exploitations, we are, we are able to be somewhat, um, to some degree, free of the past, enough to be open. Enough, and if we're open, we can really take in the extraordinary beauty of our lives, the beauty of connection, the beauty of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and Dharma talks and everything, and, and experience a kind of, of sense happiness. We can enjoy the, the joy of solitude, um, we can retreat together, whatever it is, we, we can have a certain kind of happiness. And this is the kind of quality that the Buddha really had down in his, in his early life, before, his, before he went on his, his real holy search. But he, even though he had this field of, of capacity to enjoy sense pleasures and enjoy, um, enjoy the fragrance of, and the gift of, of non-harming in his life and generosity and all the beautiful qualities, he was still unsatisfied, like most of us, who I would say probably everyone here has a pretty strong foundation of non-harming. But yet we're still, maybe I shouldn't speak for anybody else, I'm still from time to time have angst, have dissatisfaction, want what I don't have and not, don't want what I do have. So this is the state of being that, that led the Buddha in his restlessness to, to look for something more reliable, a, a kind of happiness that wasn't as, um, um, as fleeting as the world of the pleasures of the senses. Because even though this purity, what he called purity of action, makes possible the enjoyment of all the, the worldly kinds of happiness, if one depends, makes worldly happiness, makes the pleasures of our senses our devotion, we are cheated with what he called a kind of misplaced faith, cheated with the notion that these experiences can really give us some kind of lasting happiness. And not only that, but every time we mistakenly assume that some pleasure will, is, the cause, is the real cause of happiness in our life, that pleasure, when it passes away, we experience a subtle kind of grief, a subtle kind of, uh. And in the wake of that loss, what our mind usually does, what does it usually do? it generates another one. And so we develop this incessant habit of spinning, compelled to look for the next best experience. So the Buddha saw that whole process, again, as I described in the Second Noble Truth, that process of continually searching is dukkha. 
Dukkham is the word for suffering or that which is difficult to bear or unreliable in this case. It's unreliable. So in that drama that each of us finds ourselves in of trying to find something more reliable, because all of us want to find that relief. We've, like the Buddha, have come to a practice period. We've come to a retreat. We've come to yoga. We've come to meditation, just as he did. Very much, uh, I, I like to think of, uh, remind myself of the Buddha was this human being, not a celestial being, not just a mythical character, not just symbolic, but actually a human like us who just trying to figure it out. And so he started to practice like we are. And the elements of what we're doing in our mindfulness practice, Mark spoke about it earlier today, this morning, when he was talking about connecting with using what is called mindfulness of breathing, mindful awareness to the breath, of the breath. Using a quality in our mind that we may not realize is such a, um, such a rich source of, of everything. Everything wholesome, everything liberating, every ounce of love that we have, the full juice of the heart springs from this simple quality that each of us has in our, in our minds. Heart-mind is the same word in Sanskrit, Pali. A quality that Mark referred to as connecting. And then he, he followed that with the word sustaining. Connect with the felt sense of the breath and sustain your attention through the duration of the in-breath, through the duration of the out-breath, wherever it's felt most clearly. It's the bringing this scattered attention, gathering it together, and connecting with this experience that's, of course, the body because it's always present, as a wonderful anchor to the present moment, but that connecting and that sustaining is the source, if one does this every, as many moments as possible, over and over again, what follows from this is the natural harmonizing of our mind and body, the mind and body gently coming together. We begin to feel our, we begin to feel consciousness pervade our bodies, where our mind, our consciousness has been so scattered, so lost in the imagined version of ourselves, the imagined world of our thoughts, all of a sudden it's, we're starting to feel it fill our bodies. Right now as I speak, let consciousness fill your body. Just connect with the felt sense of sitting and just sustain that for a moment. Feel that sense of aliveness. You may have felt alive before, but now you may feel even more alive. You start to feel that animating force. And I'm sure you did this all day today as you brought attention in the yoga. Begin to Consciousness begins to pervade the body. Mind and body come together. And, and as we do that, we begin to feel a kind of intense interest in being present. We begin to feel a kind of rapture in some cases, from at least in moments. In moments. Experience a kind of 
comfort and delight. Any of you have that experience today in moments? Thank you. And we then experience what Mark referred to this morning as one-pointedness. The more we practice this one-pointedness, this connecting, the sustaining, and feeling all its side benefits of comfort and rapture and intense interest, we begin to have that, not just theoretically, but we begin to taste that sense of, of oneness. Coming to that single point, what one of our teachers calls um, Ajahn Sumedho, calls this moment of one-pointedness. This experience is the point, the one point that includes everything. So this is what happened to the Buddha. He just did this over and over. And of course, if you do this with a person, you've, you really start to feel intimate with that person. You do it with, you do it with nature, you really just connect, you start to feel this permeability, what's inside, what's outside. You do it with your own mind, you start to experience the state of concentration, different states of concentration. And this is uh, what happened to the Buddha. And his mind, as your mind will from time to time, fell into a great sense of uh, the joy of concentration. What he, off, what he also called purity he had talked about before, he had talked about that first part of the Eightfold Path, called it purity of action. This part of the Eightfold Path, the part that includes mindfulness, that includes concentration, that includes wise effort, where you, you bring a wise attitude, and you bring, a, you bring a quality of mind to this process, you develop mindfulness, you develop concentration. He called this purity of mind. So he began to experience this purity of mind in the form of, of a great sense of, of happiness, the happiness of concentration. And what was interesting to him, and what may be interesting to you in those moments, is that that quality, that feeling, that experience, seemed to last a lot longer than most pleasures especially he was very determined, and it lasted a lot longer. And what was also quite interesting, when his mind and body came together, when he experienced that, and maybe you had this experience today, there was no shadow, there was no presence at all of any kind of, of torment. There was no desire for something else. There was no aversion irritation, frustration, restlessness, agitation, no doubt. There was what he described as an unmixed happiness, the joy of concentration. And he sat there a long time. And this was, at the time of his life, this was, the only, this was the only show, this was the top of the peak. This was the only show in town, at least as far as he knew. This was the pinnacle. But then he realized something. He realized that eventually, even this most delicious kind of 
experience, this period of unmixed happiness, eventually would pass away. And he realized that, um, that this was actually, could, this actually falls under the umbrella or fell under the umbrella of, of dukkha. This is actually the sukha. Sukha is the comfort or happiness. This is the sukha that's actually dukkha, unreliable, otherwise known as sukha dukkha. Because eventually, our minds come back. (laughs) Our habits show themselves. As Hafiz put it in his poem called The Ten Thousand Idiots, it is always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the ten thousand idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. (laughs) Even though this was so delicious, it was a passing show. And this was very instructive, and hopefully this is very instructive for you to enjoy the deliciousness of the moments that are exceedingly pleasurable, that last a little bit longer. But as one of my favorite teachers put it, accept what comes, but reject what goes, as though you planned for it to pass, because it will. Let go. And don't spend your whole retreat looking for this kind of experience. This is what the Buddha called the corruption of insight, the corruption of practice. But he also said if we don't, he also taught that if we don't touch some version of, of this kind of unmixed happiness. And I trust that all of you will have your own version of it. And it won't look like anyone else's necessarily. But if we didn't have some, some measure of this, we wouldn't keep practicing. So it's a springboard on one hand, but it's, it's very, um, it's easy to get a little bit caught up in it. How many of you looked for some special experience today? Did any of you? How many of you were gracious as that experience passed away? How many of you looked for it again? Thank you. So this isn't, of course, the end of of the the Buddha's way to, to happiness, the end of the Eightfold Path. The end of the Eightfold Path um, there really isn't an end. It just keeps circling around, but the way at least I'll construct the story tonight is that, that um, he didn't just, the Buddha didn't just throw away this extraordinary love, this extraordinary power of, of mind that came from being so connected and sustaining that connection. Instead, he, he actually used that power of mind to... Um, Rather, to get, rather than get caught up in a particular state of delight, instead, he used the power of mind to examine, just like you are doing in your insight meditation practice, examining the flow of your experience. And as we go through the retreat, we will keep expanding 
the meditation to include every possible experience. And the invitation will be that as any experience becomes stronger than our breath, we will notice that experience and we will connect with it. And we'll sustain our connection to notice its natural behavior, just like as I was describing with the waiting. And so this is what the Buddha did. It's talked about in the sutras that he, he, arou- he aroused all these, this qual- the qualities of, of composure and concentration and harmony of mind and body. But, and he experienced the great delight of it, but he, it's said that he did not let the, the delight overtake him. And instead, applied that mindful attention to the stream of experience, moment to moment paying attention. And an interesting thing happened. As he paid attention, everything he paid attention to, it didn't even matter what. That's why, again, going back to equal opportunity mindfulness. Everything he paid attention to had the impact, had the effect of increasing or brightening his attention. And the more he paid attention, the brighter the mind got, until his mind, not only was he noticing the different experiences that were arising in his mind, but he was also noticing the quality of of his own awareness itself. To the point that his mind and it's, you know, we talk about nobody's ever really seen a mind in a way, not kind of a thing. But one way of talking about it, his mind be, began to shine in its clarity. We can sense the qu- different qualities in our mind. Sometimes it's bright and shiny, sometimes it's dull and heavy. We begin to notice those different qualities. But as his mind began to shine in its clarity, It began to reflect everything very clearly. It became clear that there was really no separation between that, that noticing and the different experiences that were being known. As the, the wonderful Sufi poet Rumi put it, we are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are the pain in what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in every moment. There was this, that suchness of, of everything being reflected clearly, but not really any separation. We'll leave that aside for a moment. Something else began to be really clear at that moment. And this is all just a sneak preview uh, but it's something we can notice moment to moment in our own in our own way, regardless of the of the strength of our practice. Just work with sensations, work with moods, work with thoughts and images, because you can begin to see what really began to shake loose some of 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 the confusion that keeps driving us into that state of searching, that state of becoming. He began to see very clearly with that light of attention that everything that arose passed away. He began to see that everything was changing. And he began to see that all the, 
all the dramas, which we will talk a lot about our dramas, a lot about stories on the retreat, but all the dramas were really an abstraction. And what was actually true is that there were just very simple experiences unfolding. And out of this experience, he, he um, came up with a, a sutra, that I'm just going to paraphrase, it's called the All, where he began to see in the scene, there's just what's seen, very simple. In the heard, just what's heard, and the smell, just what's smelled, and the tasted, just what's tasted, and felt, just what's felt, and the, and the thought or cognized, just what's cognized. That's all. That nowhere in that process of changing sense experiences could he find a me, a my, a mine, no self at all. But as he paid attention and saw that it was just changing flow of experience, his mind stopped reacting. Stop looking for something that was solid. Stop searching for that one experience that was going to do it for him. And as his mind relaxed, as one teacher uses the expression, as it relaxed its tight fist of grasping, space was there, open, the space of openness again. And his mind fell into what he called um, the joy of um, a kind of happiness, the joy of equanimity. Otherwise known as one of my teachers put it, vipassana happiness. The happiness of seeing the arising and passing of things without grasping, condemning, or identifying with it making it into a me and a mine. Just letting things come, letting things go. And in this moment of seeing the arising and passing of things, every one of us have that ability to, to when we're mindful of anything, to, to experience a, a version of that. But when he noticed the arising and passing of things, in his intuitive intelligence, he realized that this was the first taste of what he called Lokutra Sukha, the happiness, um, the happiness that is free of hunger, of wanting anything to be different. Un, uh, his mind for that moment unstuck from the world, a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was happening, what was showing up in his mind, what was showing up in his body, uh, an unassailable kind of um, well-being, that it could be joy, it could be sorrow, it could be pain, it could be pleasure, it could be the whole range. And his mind wasn't, wasn't um, taking the bait, wasn't getting hooked in its analysis, interpretation, wanting things to be different, just receiving. And, and he fell into that joy. And with that came a great sense of delight and a natural urge to be responsive, to love and to care. And as he rested in that open equanimity, having released that grasping, something happened, something else happened. In a flash of insight, his mind 
just kind of enfolded, you could say. There's a, I don't even know how to talk about this. But his mind enfolded. And in a flash of insight, he realized, as we started with tonight, that the very reliable refuge he had been searching for was none other than the very innermost nature of his own mind. Your mind. You are the Buddha. And uh, he did let out a little song. He said, there's a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, the entire field of mind, that is neither this world nor another world nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. Forget those words. Just turn toward, uh, just recognize your own, as they call it, as some call it, your own Buddha nature. And at first, uh, he didn't think anybody could get this because it was so subtle and very similar to trying to see your own face. So close, in some ways, too close and so wondrous, almost too wondrous, amazing. But then he, through his, uh, his awakening, his, his intuitive understanding and vision, he saw that there were those like us who have just a little bit of dust on our eyes that if, uh, if pointed, pointed to this very present moment, to our own sense of presence, using the tool of mindful attention, moment after moment, aiming for this highest happiness that not only can, can all human beings realize this, what he called the sure heart's release, but in the wake of that, all the other kinds of, of pleasures of this world uh, come. So this is, this is our practice, and it's not, a, um, it's not just a feel-good practice, clearly. Um, first, we have to uh, welcome and understand the stresses as they present themselves. We have to recognize and, and begin to relinquish the causes, that not get so caught up in the wanting mind and the aversive mind, the doubtful mind, and all the... the all the tricks of our mind that encourage us to look elsewhere for our sense of well-being. Not to be fooled into thinking that temporary pleasurable experiences, as delicious as they are and and so much the fruit of our our goodness, not falling under the view that they, um, they can give us reliable happiness. To realize that that cessation of grasping and to cultivate moment by moment this path. I'll end with a ritual poem from a teacher that I 
love a lot, a Tibetan teacher named Gendon Rinpoche. His uh, poem is called Free and Easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your mind and body doesn't have much importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. So don't identify with it. Don't get too caught up in it. Don't pass judgment upon your experience or yourself. Better to simply let the entire game experience happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without trying to change and manipulate everything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as a, an actual thing or place, it's always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this awareness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own heart. Nothing to do or to undo nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. Let's sit for a few seconds together quietly. No need to change your posture. Just keep quiet. May all beings realize the beauty of this present moment. May all beings grow in mindful attention. May all beings grow in compassion and love. Thank you for uh, your enduring attention. I know it's not easy on the first night, and I appreciate you staying with it. And we now have about 22 minutes for walking practice.
um, really take advantage of these. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.